Hello, and welcome to the Somatic Podcast. It's good to have you back. This week, we take a little bit of an introspective look as Sam Clevenger, co-founder of the program, sits down with Dr. Brett Hutchins to talk about the ground upon which both his podcast and ours is built. Dr. Brett Hutchins is a professor in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow investigating an ongoing research project titled The Mobile Media Sport Moment, Markets, Technologies and Power. Dr. Hutchins also runs the Media Sport podcast series in which he talks with leading international researchers in the politics and intersections of sport and the media. In this episode, Sam talks with Brett about his background in radio, podcasting, and all things digital audio, as well as discussing what role digital audio can fulfill for sports scholars and researchers, both in terms of developing their research and to engage with a range of different audiences for their work. As Oliver and I have continued to develop the Somatic Podcast Project, we've increasingly discussed with other sports scholars and researchers about the significance of podcasting and digital audio as a discursive format that can not only aid our promotion of our research discussions and stories concerning the active body and physical culture in global societies, but can also help us rethink our very modes and mediums of research the ways that we articulate our research, and the ways that the audio form can articulate and express things that are much more difficult to convey through the textual and visual forms. So, to further this important discussion and its relation to the study of sport, I recently talked with Dr. Brett Hutchins of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, a foremost international researcher and scholar concerning digital media and sport, and a scholar who himself engages with the podcast form as part of his research agenda. My name is Associate Professor Brett Hutchins from the School of Media, Film and Journalism in Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm a, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow, which is a generously funded research fellowship that's giving me four years to examine a key topic in communications and media studies and I've chosen to focus on mobile media and sport and as part of that I've set up a broader research program that seeks to circulate and expand the range of topics and ways of thinking about media sport and I've done that through a podcast series. Um, certainly one of the ways I've done that is through a podcast series and it's called the Media Sport Podcast Series. It's I think 27 episodes in and it's produced some interesting results in terms of thinking about ways of communicating research, ways about setting research agendas and importantly ways of reaching an international audience with work beyond just the global north um, but equally connecting people from different disciplines across the global north. For the past few years Dr. Hutchins has uh, run his Media Sport podcast series in which he talks with an array of scholars in a multitude of fields that are linked to research or the study of sport, the critical study of sport in contemporary global society. He's talked with scholars ranging from Lawrence Wenner, um, editor of the International Review of the Sociology of Sport, Deborah Lupton, and recently cultural studies scholar Toby Miller and Kim Tuffoletti. So I asked uh, Dr. Hutchins to talk a little bit about 
why he started the Media Sport Podcast Series and the importance of it uh, for sports studies. I, I, I like audio. I like the idea, the, the way of engaging. I think audio complements particularly the written word in a way sometimes that television doesn't or the visual doesn't. I think they're all related, of course, but for when it comes to actual traditional research outputs, I think interviews and audio sort of based explanations and, and discursive, you know, sort of exchanges a way of working through the ideas that we often find in research. Um, the actual idea for it and the reason I put it into the podcast series was, was twofold. The first one was if we live in a mobile digital media age, as we you know, continually can be uh, told, how do you then think about the way research changes in form beyond the written word? So one was a, a very much a live extension of the research project on mobile media that if people are listening to and consuming media content on their iPhones on their mobile devices well how can that then be dovetailed through into the sort of research coming out of the project and the second part is of course just seeking to expand audiences connect with students and speak at multiple levels one thing I really enjoy about the interview format is the fact that good researchers can speak to multiple audiences at once. So the listenership for the podcast, you know, has ranged from everywhere from undergrad students to postgrads to early career researchers through to, you know, very established researchers. And I find the interview a good way of actually putting a, a personal voice, a, a way of listening to someone talk about their ideas as opposed to just engaging with the written word, which... Um, is strangely impersonal. There's something about the print word on the page that we don't always get a sense of the person behind the words, and I think audio helps to add that. What was really interesting early on in my conversation with Brett was the role that a previous and enduring interest in audio, um, either in radio or music or podcasting, the role it played in sort of shaping the interest in pursuing digital audio and podcasting in terms of how it can um, have a role in sport research and in sport research promotion, sport research expression. Um, for myself, uh, uh, background in music and playing live music, uh, Oliver, my co-founder of Somatic, uh, interest in podcasting, and with Dr. Hutchins, it was an interest in community radio, and he talked a little bit about his background and his experience in community radio and how it impacted um, his thoughts about uh, podcasting, digital audio, with his research. Look, Australia is a small country, so you know you can imagine if community radio is a small sector in a small country, um, <laughs> you'd probably get a sense. Look, it was a from memory, uh, it was a. I was living in Canberra, where, which is the nation's capital, um, a pretty sleepy city, uh, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And it's got a population, I think, of two, three hundred thousand. And it, and this was a community radio station that specialised in sport. Um, and primarily made its, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the revenue, any revenue that went through the place was on, off the back of um, horse racing and coverage. But they had a oh, whole okay. series of daily programs like Drive and the news and the sort of things you would find on, you know, most standard AM band radio stations. Um, right. And what they used to do is give people an opportunity to develop their, their production skills, their presentation skills. Um, 
And, you know, there was something about being able to work on those skills in a, in a relatively low-pressure environment, but also be able to connect with, you know, a, a public of some sort. Um, and I also enjoyed... I'm much more comfortable speaking than... Um, I'm much more comfortable with the with speaking. You know, I, I'm reasonably introverted. I think interpersonally, I can speak in part in front of large numbers of people. But I like radio. Um, you know, as I right. say, the voice. I'm relatively comfortable with my own voice. But if you you put me in front of a group of people or put a camera on me, you know, I'm not as comfortable. So radio had an immediate appeal to me at that level. Um, but also just in the way people speak without that benefit of the visuals um, adds an extra layer of context and depth that that seems to suit or complement the way I think and and that's part of you know why I became interested in not only community radio but also always had this idea running around in the back of my head for the last 20 years that I'd really like to use those skills again but I honestly didn't know how that would ever occur. So when I got the fellowship and wrote the podcast series into the application, that was, you know, finally the opportunity that, that I, I hoped might arise. interesting topics that came up in my conversation with Brett was this idea of the audio form as potentially a more discursive format for research expression, research discussion, indeed potentially research praxis, than our traditionally understood avenues and formats such as the textual, uh, the, the conference paper, um, the article, the monograph, and the visual, having a visual representation, uh, maybe that be television or a documentary image. The audio form without that sort of background, without the textual reference, without the visual reference, how it suddenly is this more discursive space, and a space for the articulation of ideas and the articulation of research. So this is what I talked a little bit more with Brett, and he had some really interesting uh, insight into this topic. Something that uh, a few years ago, would have been a number of years ago now, Polity Press from memory published a whole series of little books called Conversations With, with various social theorists, Manuel right. Castells, Ulrich Beck, a number of others, and uh, Zygmunt Bauman. And I particularly enjoyed reading those interviews. And I then thought about what you take from listening to someone challenged to explain an idea as opposed to just present it and to explain the broader context of their career and you know why they've come to write or research the things they do and write what they write and my sense was that the podcast series could probably a podcast or a radio format an audio interview could probably do that better 
than than the printed word. I, right. I, I did play around with the idea of um, interviewing various people and you know publishing the interviews on my project website. You know that was one way of going about it, but. It struck me that given, you know, uh, it's a, it's almost a cliche, the boom in podcasting, which strikes me as a, a very old idea of, you know, talking to people in audio form. It's not so much a boom, it's more of a boom in distribution. Um, right. That the way forward here was to think about ways of connecting researchers working in different on different continents, in different countries, from different disciplinary backgrounds across the humanities and social sciences. But you know, connecting them in a common interest on media and or sport. And the Media Sport podcast series has evolved in relation to that objective. Yeah, I think there's something genuinely discursive about you know, a, a chat with somebody. I mean, I, I, I challenge anyone just to, you know, think through the way they go about their everyday conversations and then sort of see how they might, um, you know, try and put that into a slightly more formal context of a recorded, you know, a recorded interview. Um, and if there's, any, if there's any skill in what I do, and I don't think there's a great deal of skill, and I'm not being falsely modest, it's very lo-fi what I do, um, it is having the confidence to actually maintain that informality, not to fall back on my knowledge of the literature or quoting key theorists or just simply making myself the subject. You know, like it's the idea of sitting back and actually genuinely asking questions to what's being said to you and then trusting that the preparation you've done and the engagements you've had with the interviewee in the lead up to the interview itself, everything from email to Skype chats or phone chats or face-to-face chats, means that, you know, in, in a lot of senses, they, they do respect your capacity as a, as a thinker and a speaker, that you don't have to prove that in the middle of an interview. That that's, And you've got to have the confidence to let their voice come through as, a, as right. opposed to mine. Um, you know, if I really want the world to hear what I'm thinking, I'll either record my own monologue and then pop, you know, post it to the, the, the podcast series, which I won't be doing, but that's one way of doing it, or I'll sit down and write. And I, I do a lot of writing and I publish a fair bit, so I'll continue to do that. I've got plenty of places for my voices and, you know, the various Man. voices that I inhabit. Um, but really what I want to do is actually offer a guest who I think is producing really interesting work. Not always really successful work, but really interesting or challenging work or work I think people should be paying attention to, the chance just to answer some questions and to think through why they do what they do, how they've come to do it, and, you know, what its contribution is. And I won't lie to you, um, particularly my readers prior to submission, there was a great deal of scepticism towards the idea of a podcast series. People couldn't quite see why you would bother doing that. Um, But thankfully, the the performance post that has been really interesting, seeing the way people have thought or changed their way of thinking about that 
once I've seen, first of all, the way I went about it, I had a pretty clear idea that I didn't want to produce, you know, like a, a journal article in audio form. I wanted to produce a chat, right. an informal right. chat that wandered left and right as necessary, um, but also had a key theme running through it, be it a concept that a, an author had produced or something that I think is highly original about their work. And sometimes the, 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 the guests might agree with me on that one. Sometimes they don't. And that's kind of interesting when, when you sort of end up in a discussion. And we can't, I, I think in all our research, we can't control the way people receive it. And the really interesting discussions come in what a person's intention was versus the way it was received. And a podcast chat is a way of actually working through that relationship. Like all forms of work and research output, there's a question of labor, the amount of labor that goes involved that is involved in the production of podcasts, um, and this these production processes are related to um, the traditional labor of the scholar of the academic, but also distinct with the software and the equipment, uh, collaboration with others who have skills that are necessary to produce a digital audio product like a podcast. Um, very laborious tasks and uh, particularly laborious in specific interesting ways in terms of how it relates to traditional work. Um, in academic circles, and this was an interesting question that I talked with uh, Dr. Hutchins more about. You know, like everybody else, the amount of labour needs to occur in relation to all the labour that I'm doing on everything else um, in my job in my life. Uh, there's no, I get no, um, I get no research points or things like that from my university for the podcast series. I do get recognition from the Australian Research Council, which is great. Um, I know I won't be able to do as many uh, programs as soon as the fellowship is over. But, um, you know, I, I was thinking the other day, it depends on very much my relationship with the potential interviewee and whether I have a relationship. Someone I don't know at all, that's a much more laborious task than someone I do. Um, right. The one advantage of having been publishing on sport for you know, 15, 20 years or whatever it's been, is that you've met plenty of people at conferences and they at least remember who you were versus, right. you know, a cold call, um, right. So, which I, I have done. So, you know, the, the process of setting up the interview combined with then arranging a time, usually a, with a pretty significant time difference given I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, um, right. then the recording of it then depends on how... 
often they needed to start and restart, and really importantly, how often I needed to start and restart. Then the editing of it, um, then you know the posting of it and the publicising of it across the various social networks. Uh, you know, you're talking a quick one, six hours. You know, and it can go out to about ten hours. You know, so you're talking right. you're talking a good day or more's work. Truth is, I've offered what I have been doing because I've had to do a fair bit of travel in the past year with the fellowship. Is I've been recording, you know, a, a couple of episodes and just taking the unedited file onto a long haul flight um, and editing it on the long haul flight. And it's all done when I get off. Um, but, you know, you sort of need that concentrated time to edit it, listen to it. You know, you've, you're listening to the unedited file which can be up to 60 minutes trying to bring it down somewhere between 30 and 40 maximum unless it's a particularly strong interview um, and then editing it which takes a fair while and then have, wanting to listen back it again before posting it to make sure that it sounds the way you thought it did so you know that, it's a fair bit of time um, but you know it's it's worth it at the level that you then think about providing you're prepared to pay your podcast hosting charge each year um, on a couple of different platforms, one primarily for Android and one for iOS or Apple, is that um, those interviews can right. sit, sit there for as long as you want. So, yeah, I, I think it's, if you, if you really wanted to apply, a, you know, an efficiency logic to it, I think it is pretty efficient. You know, that six to ten hours you know, the, a good interview, some of them are still being downloaded now. You know, they're sitting there two, three, four years later. So it's, you know, right. and people's, you know, if you get the right people and you get people who, are dis you get PhD students, you get undergrads, or you get researchers who are discovering researchers and the books they've written and they find it on a Google search, you know, or whatever search engine you choose to use. Um, that's pretty valuable because it offers a, a new dimension that's actually quite hard to find in, in a lot of cases. But from all that effort and that labor that goes into the podcast, it's available online. It's on SoundCloud or iTunes. It's potentially free, usually free. It can be downloaded, listened to while you're driving the car, while you're working, while you're at home. Um, there's no JSTOR. There's no database where you need a library subscription or you have to be a student or faculty to get access. It's right there on the Internet, accessible. And that accessibility really matters. Um, but equally, you know, if you're coming across them reasonably early, you're in your, in, you know, if you're thinking about a particular researcher, if you're coming across them particularly early in your engagement with them, hearing them speak can be a distinct advantage, you know, uh, in terms of, oh, that's what they're trying to do. Or, you know, it just, it's like a lot of things. It just adds this nice complementary dimension to whatever book you might have sitting on your desk. A person wrote it. Person right. who lives in the world with ideas, with experiences that brought them to this research problem, and this evidence that they're working with, or this set of theories, um, and I, I think personally that's very valuable, and certainly the feedback I've got suggests it's very valuable.
what I think is one of the most exciting and most interesting things about the podcast and digital audio form and its relation to research about sport and physical culture um, is the way it helps us to reconsider and rethink um, fundamental questions of what constitutes research. What what forms of research do we privilege? Forms of research praxis are implicitly privileged within sort of accepted, um, well-trodden ways of doing work in the academy. Um, what are the ways that podcast digital audio can expand and create alternative modes that complement and expand uh, traditional modes of research and research praxis? And what are the things that uh, digital audio can do or can are ways that it can reach different audiences in ways that are beneficial and, and in ways that are more difficult with textual or even uh, visual formats. Uh, it's a really, really interesting question that I asked that I asked uh, Dr. Hutchins to talk more about. I have a distinct advantage in a fellowship gives me... Look, these fellowships are quite difficult to get. I feel very lucky to have gotten mine. I'm not saying there wasn't skill or not expertise involved. Of course there was, but you need that and a little bit of luck to actually, you know, get get a research fellowship that effectively pays a full-time wage for four years in this country. Um, right. But that gives me, you know, a fair bit of cover and justification to do that because it was written into the project. Um at the same time, you know, I have worked through what, trying to work out what I'm doing. You know, this is, I mean, I'm sitting at the end of doing this for three, a bit over three years now. And over that time, my thoughts on what I thought I was doing versus what I'm actually doing versus what I'm trying to do have shifted about a fair bit. Um, and I feel like I've, over that time, become a bit clearer on what I'm trying to do. And I, I've explained that earlier. But I put forward my podcast series, I think it was 24, 25 episodes, to, the, to our faculty research committee to ask them to mm-hmm. consider it as a non-traditional research output, which is possible in Australia, to get it counted towards my research outputs um, in the manner of, say, theatre performance or music do in my faculty. And it was rejected, um, but, you know, I... I can understand why it was rejected. I wasn't actually particularly cranky about it. But it, what it set up about the problem was this liminal space in which new practices exist, that committees charged with, you know, applying criteria, you know, have to actually, you know, sit on enough committees. You, you're required to apply the criteria. And what wasn't clear was sort of editorial oversight. So if I'd published this podcast series through... Um, a commercial news publisher, you know, or a, a commercial media outlet with an editorial process, it would have been counted as research. But at the same time, right. the the value of what I was doing was also quite strongly and um, yeah, quite strongly articulated. Everyone thought it was fascinating, and every. You know, the committee itself communicated back that they basically, I forget the exact wording here, but it was something along the lines of an outstanding example of um, research-based activity and communication. So the value's there, but uh, the job of driving change, the job of existing in the world in which media plays an increasing role throughout so many social and cultural spheres, is that institutional structures and categories take time to change. And 
part of what experimentation allows is for that evolution. And I simply looked at in the broader context of thing, I think that's what's going on here, that over time, you know, if enough people doing it, enough people experimenting different ways of doing it, it may be possible to have it recognised in the future. But I was the first person ever in the... I'm in a very large university um, of about, you know, 70,000 students, um, and I forget how many staff, but, you know, in the thousands. You mm. know, it's the first podcast series that had ever gone to this faculty uh, committee, and we're the largest faculty in the country. So... That's, you know, that to me is a really interesting example of, of what happens when you get given the space to experiment, which is what I was, I was given that privilege. Um, and I don't regret it at all, even right. though it wasn't recognized. And I wouldn't discourage <laughs> anyone from pursuing that sort of experimentation, as long as, of course, that they continue to produce their, what, whatever they need to produce in order to continue on their job and produce you know good articles good teaching however they're communicating they're, they're great ideas they've got to find ways of doing that as a nice way of rounding out and finishing this episode uh, i want to end with a clip of dr hutchins talking about the practical things um, that that people can do with podcasts and digital audio in relation to their already um, in process work and their work as a teacher, as a professor, as a scholar. Um, you could, you know, you could present a podcast series that's explicitly designed to be used in teaching. You know, right. you, you could design a podcast series that is deliberately designed. Each article you write, you, you know, you produce an episode talking to an expert in the field on that topic and use it as a way of co-promoting that article or, you are, you're a PhD student who happens to have some pretty significant audio skills and really loves, you know, we, I sometimes think that we let these categories detract from what we're really passionate about. We've got to find out, it's all about working towards ways of doing the things we do anyway. So, you know, right. if you're a PhD right. student who's got to read these six books because you know you've got to read them because you can't produce your thesis without them well why not try and you, you know why not try and interview the six authors um now it's a great way of making contact but yeah it's not to say everyone will speak to you this takes a certain amount of skill to get people to recruit people to actually speak to you um but, but any but anything and yeah having I'm reasonably insistent, um, which is, you know, is a kind of useful characteristic, <laughs> but, yeah, <right. laughs> um, but you sort of, there's ways of, uh, there's ways of adding, uh, I don't like the term, but there's ways of adding value or there's ways of, I think finding satisfaction might be the better term that, we, you know, we know that this is worthwhile and it's finding enough of those experiences in our professional and research and teaching lives that make the job worth doing. And podcasting can be actually plugged into that idea, you know, how, and it won't be, it's not going to be for everybody, but I seriously believe that everybody should be thinking, at least engaging with it at some level and acknowledging that um, it's now part of an overall research and teaching ecology that we exist within. How couldn't it be, given if you look at download stats, given you look at the global spread of mobile communications and media, given the power of Apple, of SoundCloud, which admittedly are financially challenged. But, you know, this isn't going anywhere soon. And in another 10 years' time, 
it's going to be completely unremarkable. And that's the thing. It's, right. When something's new, you know, it's like, oh, this is new, but it's just, in, it's really quite remarkable how something just becomes routine. And right. the important thing is, to, is, as something is new, is to grapple with why it's significant. What's significant about it? What isn't? What's hype versus what's real? What can be actually used here? And that's where I would challenge almost, um, you know, all scholars, irrespective of discipline, to think about, you know, those questions. Because at some level, if you, it's part of the world and it's part of how our students engage and it's part of how people consume content. So it's important that we get our heads around the best ways to use these sort of technologies and distribution mechanisms. It's that issue of working towards ways of doing the things that we all do anyway, I think is so prescient and central to the question of the possibilities involved in digital audio as a form and a complementary form of research, research output, research expression um, for sport, physical culture scholars. Um, it's too fundamental to contemporary society, this society today, for us not to engage with it and, and to wrestle with it and see what's, what's beneficial, maybe what's not, what's problematic, um, but wrestle with this form um, that seems to have this real deeply effective discursive dimension that, that sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes can be lost in the textual form. Um, and in particular, uh, affect that doesn't have a visual reference to it. It's just that sort of raw audio affect. Um, it's so interesting and something that I think is very um, useful and should be considered. that's it for the episode this week um, again we just want to thank Dr. Brett Hutchins um, for his time and his insight he gave us some really um, some really intriguing answers um, and some some information that really sets up the whole idea behind both what he's doing with his show uh, and what we're trying to do with ours and, and we we're excited to have him on and, and excited to, to, to be able to pick his brain about this whole area of digital audio and, and sport research um, this is going to be the last episode uh, of 2017. Uh, we're excited and looking forward to 2018, uh, bringing you some more shows. Um, we actually had the opportunity to do a live episode at the annual conference for the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport this year. Um, and we're going to be looking to bring you some uh, content related to that show 
uh, in the new year and others. Um, again, as always, if you're interested in working with us on a project uh, for the show, you can reach out to us at our email at somaticpodcast at gmail.com. Um, also, if you want more information about the topic from this week, uh, you can head over to our website, somaticpodcast.com, where there'll be a blog post with some additional audio um, and some other links to material that, that Sam's going to put up there as well. Um, that's going to be it from the show, so we'll wrap it up there. This has been Somatic. <laughs>